China, data, campaigning, modernizing. Those are just some of the key words in two just-out documents. The National Defense Strategy and the DOD Strategic Management Plan, not surprisingly, emphasize rivalry with China and the need to protect space and cyber assets. For what industry sees initially in these documents, we turn to the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, these documents are kind of broad. They all say a lot of good boilerplate stuff. But this idea of constantly campaigning, improving data analysis, chops, establishing a new office of data, it's in the management plan. Seems like there's stuff for contractors to grasp onto. Yes, Tom, and thanks for, uh, for having me on. Uh, you know, both of these documents came out towards the end of last week. The uh, On Thursday, the unclassified version of the National Defense Strategy, it's 90 pages long. And then the very next day, or 80 pages long, the very next day, the 94-page Strategic Management Plan, which highlights its connection to the day before's National Defense Strategy. Now, it's important to emphasize that for the National Defense Strategy, this is the unclassified version, right? There's a secret version, uh, which was shared with Congress earlier, uh, not available for uh, for us to discuss, obviously, on, on your show here. But we go through these with a, a fine-tooth comb to say, okay, what does this mean uh, for contractors, because documents themselves don't translate into resources, they don't translate into budget priorities, they certainly don't translate into solicitations and awards and, and new contracts, but they frame the way in which DOD will approach those. And so that's how we look at it. So what do they hold for government contractors? Well, let's take a look at them. All right. One of the things that Secretary Lloyd Austin emphasizes in the defense strategy itself is campaigning. Quote, the conduct and sequencing of logically linked military activities to achieve strategically lined objectives over time. Have we seen that word before in earlier strategies? We've seen the word campaigning, but not used in the way it is here. And I think that's really an indication of, of a recognition of, of uh, how far China has come. You know, if you go back over the national defense strategies, and there's typically one every four years, and it's connected to a broader White House national security strategy. Each administration does its own. Um, uh, you know, over time, uh, the way we emphasize China and talk about China in these reports has been changing. Uh, and in, in this case, you know, I, I don't know whether it's the acute threat that's Russia or the, the long-term consequential uh, dynamic that China presents. I really can't tell the difference between those two. It may be that they're both in each category, but to a lesser degree, perhaps. Um, but the real question is, uh, you know, what do they what do they mean by that in terms of going forward? I think the implication is that we're going to pay a lot more attention to our ability as a nation and with our allies and partners, both to deploy forces into potentially combat areas and also to sustain and support those forces. That is new. That emphasis is much stronger in this strategy than I've seen any time in the past. And as you know, at PSC, we spend a lot of time on the sustainment end of things because that's where contractors most come into play. Sure. And the other thing that caught my eye, again, in the defense strategy itself was he mentioned strengthening and modernizing command and control systems for the nuclear enterprise. I don't think that is necessarily a reaction to the threats from Russia, but the fact that this simply has been neglected for quite a long time. It has, and it's recognized. And actually, this administration's taken a unique approach because they've incorporated into their national defense strategy two other documents. One is the nuclear posture review, again, updating the one from the previous administration, and the missile defense review, 
updating the one from the previous administration. By merging all of these together, it actually does provide an opportunity to highlight some common areas of interest, command and control being one of them that actually affects all three of these areas. The nuclear command and control, of course, is specific to the nuclear posture review. There are two big issues that flow from this, though. One is, what does it mean for resources? Because ultimately, strategies without the resources to implement them are just a nice document to have. Uh, you may have it printed on your shelf, or you may just have it stored in your electronic media. Uh, but you need the resources in the budget. And a, a big question that, uh, in my mind, and, and I think we've looked for examples of this, is to what extent does the national security strategy and the national defense strategy is it already reflected in the president's FY23 budget, which, of course, has been on the Hill since uh, since last spring, last April, uh, in its details? Uh, and to what extent is does it reflect there? And to what extent will it be in the FY24 budget, which is the budget that DOD and the White House is building today? We'll have to wait and see about 24. For 23, it's hard to map them back because this document wasn't out when that budget was submitted. But that's where the contracts will be coming from, the contractors will be pursuing over the next few months and years. We are speaking with David Berto, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And on the strategic management side, I didn't see a whole lot about procurement or business systems modernization. I mean, it's in there. But one thing I did see early on was the establishment of a chief digital and artificial intelligence office. Now, they have artificial intelligence units already in DOD. This looks like a move to maybe elevate that even higher and maybe acknowledge how important this all really is. Right. And before the plan was even issued, that office had been stood up. And if you go back and look at the uh, at the memorandum from the deputy secretary announcing it, the idea was to, to do something that you hinted at, which is to take the myriad offices that are already established across the department and integrate them, combine them in a way that actually increases its focus and, and integrate the collaboration and cooperation necessary here. It's a little too soon to tell how well that's going to work. And, and you're, you're right in pointing out that ultimately its ability to get things done depends on the enablers, the procurement system and processes, right? The uh, integration of data across the board, the way in which the department modernizes its systems, legacy systems, whether it's IT or weapon systems or command and control systems, and the way in which they manage the legacy systems that are left behind. The report, the plan, the strategic management plan hints at these, actually cites these in individual cases. If you use the search mechanism, you'll find a sentence here or there. But it's not pulled together in such a way that it allows industry to see how it's going to turn into real uh, support needed uh, in order to have that execution be successful. We're going to have to see that develop over time. And these things are written by committee anyway, so it's hard for any one dominant theme to actually dominate. The other note that I took from this was they mentioned a new framework for strategic readiness. And I think people understand that readiness is a huge issue for the military right now. Their facilities are old. A lot of the platforms are old and not really available commonly. And they mentioned specifically the need to have readiness without carving out money that's needed for long-term building up of forces. This is the constant tension inside the Defense Department. It was true during the Cold War. It was true during the period after the Cold War. And now I don't think this is a Cold War we're entering into, but it's certainly a, a period of heightened threat and more significant consequences than we've seen over the last 20 or even 30 years. And so I think that attention is necessary. But the tension between the two, that is readiness for today, investment in the future, is one that 
I think DOD in, hints in these reports, and I think it's absolutely true uh, when you look at the reality of it, is we can't say do one or the other. We have to do both. What does that imply for resources? What does it imply for budgets, uh, particularly in, a, in what may be a different congressional environment going forward? We're going to have to watch very closely. The emphasis on readiness, though, also has to do with sustainment and logistics, because readiness only goes as far as the first day, uh, and then it's what can you do to support your forces. I think one of the great lessons of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the challenge of sustaining forward deployed forces, whether in combat or just ready for combat. You know, the Russians obviously have trouble uh, doing this even close to home, but the lesson for the U.S. is, is not close to home. It's across, you know, 8,000 miles of an ocean. Uh, allies and partners come into play here. But again, the, the uh, emphasizing the need for improved logistics and sustainment, which the National Defense Strategy does, which the Strategic Management Plan mentions in places. Um, but it's short on specifics. You know, we're going to we know that contractors provide both the surge potential and the long term sustainment and readiness support that's needed. But only if DOD builds that into its plans, into its budgets, and into its contracts. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. We'll see how this unfolds. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, and we'll also have links to both those documents. Subscribe to the podcast version of the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? 
it's such a it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, and I will say, I think it would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those too and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes, and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for Taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. 
looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. 
But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.